we have come to the point in this election season that the conversation has turned to the candidates and religion. And after that is discussed for a while, it always moves to separation of church and state. Now, how did we get to our current understanding of separation of church and state? Where did the idea come from? Well, certainly our forefathers did not want a state church because they had suffered the abuses of a state church prior to the establishment of America. Well, then how did we get to where we are with our understanding of religion and government? In 1789, George Washington was writing to some Virginia Baptists who had written to him with a concern. They were concerned that some of the amendments being offered to the Constitution would jeopardize their religious freedoms. So George Washington wrote, If I could have entertained the slightest apprehension that the Constitution framed in the Convention where I had the honor to preside might possibly endanger the religious rights of any ecclesiastical society, certainly I would never have placed my signature on it. So as George Washington then, the father of our country, was responding to the question, he said, I would never agree with anything that would endanger religious freedom. It was in 1791 that some Virginia Baptists encouraged James Madison to introduce an amendment to the Constitution. The amendment said, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So the establishment clause of which we hear so much about actually came from believers. It came from Baptists. In 1802, Thomas Jefferson was writing to the Baptists at the Danbury Association in Connecticut, and he wrote, I contemplate with solemn reverence that act of the whole American people, which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Now, within the context of the remarks made by Jefferson, by Madison, and by Washington, it is clear what our founding fathers meant. They were concerned about protecting the freedom of the church, and that was the reason for the wall of separation of church and state. Now, certainly, that idea has been greatly distorted today with the understanding currently. And as a result of that, that has led to lawsuits concerning the removal of in God we trust and, and uh, re removing under God from the Pledge of Allegiance and so forth. And so we understand that there has been a distortion of what our founding fathers believed. Personally, my greatest concern about our freedoms in the future involves hate crime legislation. I know that it sounds innocuous enough, but I am very concerned that in the future that will be the instrument that is used to attempt to silence the church and the gospel of Christ. So today I want to speak to you about some of these things. There's a passage of Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 13, 
where Peter wrote, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men, act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now, let's begin with the question. Where did the idea of self-governance or democracy originate? Where did the idea originate? Well, we generally believe that it originated with God. When God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the Garden of Eden, in the midst of that garden, he placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and said to man, do not eat of this forbidden fruit. Now, by doing so, he gave man the freedom to choose and the responsibility of his choices. So then God created man with freedom. And ladies and gentlemen, we have the freedom to choose our master. Joshua chapter 24, verse number 15. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. So as Joshua then addressed the people of Israel, he said, if it is disagreeable with you, if you do not choose to serve the Lord, well then choose who you will serve. And then Elijah later said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. So Elijah is saying that you have the choice. If you believe that Jehovah is God, then you ought to follow him. But if, on the other hand, you believe that Baal is God, then it makes sense to follow him. So God created us then and gave us the freedom to choose our master. As a matter of fact, you have the freedom to choose your lifestyle. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 26 to 28, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, and the curse if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God. So in that passage of Scripture, he said there are two paths available to you. He said if you walk in obedience to the way of God, then you walk in God's blessings. But if you choose, then you can walk in disobedience to God, and as a result, then you walk under the curse of God. But you have the freedom to choose. You have the freedom to choose your destiny. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse number 29 and 31, Solomon wrote, Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, so shall they eat of the fruit of their own way. So he says, you have the freedom to choose. Now, our forefathers then recognized that God had given us freedom to choose and responsibility that goes with choosing. Understand, at the time, that was a very radical and revolutionary concept. The idea of self-governance. The idea of a democracy as our forefathers understood it. Dr. Gary Allen, chaplain to the United Nations, spoke on May the 7th this year to 74 diplomats from 60 nations. He said in 1776, the concept of self-governance was revolutionary. 
Historically, it had been assumed that the common people were incapable of directing the affairs of society, that there is an elite governing class that is especially equipped to be entrusted with this responsibility. At the time of American independence, approximately 2% of the British adult population was eligible to vote in parliamentary elections. Our forefathers saw the idea of self-governance, of a democracy, as originating with God. But they all also understood that it was a fragile system. Benjamin Franklin was coming out of the Constitution Convention when a woman, a housewife from Philadelphia, stopped him and said, Mr. Franklin, what have you achieved? To which he replied, a Republican, a Republic, madam, if you can keep it. That has always been the concern. That has always been the thought, a Republic, if you can keep it. In fact, I read some words by John Adams that are... uh, Very sobering to me. He said, remember, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There never was a democracy that did not commit suicide. When George Washington was giving his farewell address in 1796, he said, Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. So according to him in his farewell address, he is saying that religion and morality are indispensable to democracy, and if you lose that, you lose democracy. Daniel Webster, on the 75th anniversary of our independence, said, Let the righteous element in man's nature be neglected. Let him be influenced by no higher motives than low self-interest and subjected to no stronger restraint than the limits of civil authority. And he becomes the creature of selfish passion of blind fanaticism. So in the establishment of our self-governance, the idea was that it came from God, that it was fragile, and it can be destroyed. As I understand it, there are two basic enemies to democracy, fear and greed. Fear causes us to withdraw from the system, that we give up, we become cynical, we withdraw. And I hear more and more and more today people who are saying, well, I don't like any of the candidates that are running for office, so I'm not going to vote. I'm not going to participate. I don't believe that it is going to get any better. We're going down the tubes. All is lost and so forth. Now, folks, listen, if we take that approach, if that is our attitude, that cynicism that comes out of fear, then we will lose our democracy because we will not be participants. Fear is an enemy to democracy. And the other enemy, the basic enemy as I see it, is greed. Alexander Titler, a Scottish historian, wrote, A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. 
It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves money from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most benefits from the public treasury. So when we are motivated out of fear and we stop participation, or we are motivated out of greed, what's in it for me, then we lose our democracy. Now, if this is true, I am fearful sometimes that we are in the throes of losing our democracy. And there is an irony with that. At a time when it seems to me that we are giving up on democracy, we are attempting to export it to other nations. And the question that is in my mind is this. Would we accept the democracy of our founding fathers today if we heard of it for the first time? And I am fearful that we would not. Dr. Allen said the values of our founding fathers in the late 18th century are generally no longer embraced by government leadership to the extent that if we were to attempt to establish a self-governing society today from nothing, I am convinced we would fail. Hence the irony of attempting to export to other cultures something we would not be able to work in our own culture. Self-governance, democracy, I believe it originated with God. It is fragile, and it can be lost. There are two essential principles for democracy. One is a corporate morality. In other words, for democracy to work, we must be moral citizens. And there are two restraints that cause us to live moral lives. One is internal, one is external. The internal is this. A belief that there is a just God before whom one day we will stand and give an account. Now, that is the internal restraint that causes us to do moral things. In fact, that has been our history as a nation. We have believed that, that there is a just God before whom one day we will stand and give an account. Now, because we believe that, Business deals were often struck with nothing more than the shake of a hand. Why? Because we believed the person was moral. We believed that they would do what they said they would do. Education, public education in our country has been successful because it has been built on the Word of God, the principles of God's Word. In 1782, Congress approved the use of the Bible in the schools. And as a matter of fact, they paid for those Bibles with tax dollars. Why? Because they understood the importance of internal restraint. They understood the importance of moral values. We used to trust our neighbors as moral people. In fact, we did not lock our doors. We would be gone and they had access to whatever they wanted if they chose. Uh, why? Because we believed that they were moral people.
So there are two restraints available to us to cause us to live moral lives. One is internal, that is the Spirit of God indwelling us. We believe that there is a just God and one day we will stand before Him and give an account. That is the internal restraint. Now, if we do not have that internal restraint, and which is my concern, if we do not have that internal restraint, then we must look to an outside restraint, an external restraint, which is law. And so we are losing our freedoms daily in this country because laws are being passed to force us to do what we once did because of the internal restraints. There must be corporate morality for democracy to last and there must be individual responsibility. Our forefathers stressed the essential ingredient for a democracy as being citizens of character. Dr. Allen said, It is clear that the architects of the move towards suffrage of the common citizens were convinced that the most important factor affecting the building of a self-governing society is the character of the people. And folks, if our character erodes... Our democracy dies because it is contingent upon that. It is based upon moral people. Benjamin Franklin said only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. C.S. Lewis had an interesting statement. Mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked powers over his fellows. Aristotle said that some people were only fit to be slaves. I do not contradict him. But I reject slavery because I see no men fit to be masters. If we are going to have a democracy, then it is essential that we be people of morality. If we are going to sustain our democracy, then we must be godly people, and without God, we cannot have a democracy. William Penn wrote, if we are not governed by God, then we will be ruled by tyrants. Robert Charles Winthrop said, men, in a word, must necessarily be controlled either by a power without them or a power within them either by the Word of God or by the strong arm of man, either by the Bible or the bayonet. If we are not godly people, if we are not godly citizens, we cannot sustain democracy. That's the nature of democracy. We have to be a moral people. We have to be a godly people. We have to be a self-controlled people. And the U.S. Constitution was predicated upon the ability of the citizens to control themselves. James Madison wrote, We have staked the future of all our political institutions upon the capacity of mankind for self-government, upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves, to control ourselves, to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. Historian Philip Schaff wrote, Republican institutions in the hands of a virtuous and God-fearing nation are the very best in the world. But in the hands of a corrupt and irreligious people, they are the very worst and the most effective weapons of destruction. 
If we are going to maintain democracy, then we have to have corporate morality and individual responsibility. We can't have it otherwise. There has to be a moral people corporately, and as individuals, we must accept responsibility for our own actions. Now, we sing, God bless America, and the president closes his speeches saying, God bless America. And all of us probably feel a little uncomfortable with that because we would ask the question, why should God bless America? Or maybe that's just me. I feel a little uncomfortable with it, even though I do want God to bless America. But his blessings are conditional. God just doesn't bless us. They are conditional. What are the conditions? I think we have to have a reverence for God. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 33:18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. Folks, if we want God to bless America, then we're going to have to reverence Him for who He is. He is the Creator. I'm overwhelmed by the beauty of this creation. I, don't, I love to sit out early in the morning and have a cup of coffee and... and uh, Watch the birds and, and, and look at the grass and the trees and absolutely marvel at what a beautiful world God created. And I believe with all my heart that God created this world. I don't think it's the result of an accident. We reverence Him as the Creator. We reverence Him as our provider that He provides for us according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He is the sustainer of our lives, promising He would never leave us. He is the Savior, the only Savior, says in Acts, There is none other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. I was disturbed this last week, and perhaps you were as well. If you read or heard the Pew study, that Pew Institute study that came out, and what believers believe today about salvation and the number of believers, the percentage of believers, including evangelicals, who believe that there are many ways to heaven, many ways to salvation. The, the, the notion, and, and, and the first thing that comes to my mind is, where in the world did we fail so desperately as, as the church in our teaching? How, how did we fail so desperately that people believe that? The second thing that came to my mind is, um, if that is true, then why did Jesus have to die? And God allowing Jesus to die on the cross for our sin, if it were not necessary, was the cruelest thing I can imagine Him doing. The Bible says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Folks, whether you accept it or not, whether you believe it or not, let me say this to you because I don't want it on my conscience. There is one way of salvation, and it is Jesus Christ. That's not a hard thing. That's a wonderful thing. That Jesus died that all could be saved. That He paid for our sin. We are to reverence who He is. We are to reverence His judgment. 
We must be dependent upon Him, I think. If we're going to have a democracy and we truly sing, God bless America, then our dependence must be on Him. One of my favorite scriptures is in Second Chronicles chapter 20 when Jehoshaphat was surrounded by his enemy and he said he didn't know what to do. Lord, we're like children here. We don't know what to do. And the Bible says that he summoned all the people together and they sought the Lord. That's what we need to do. We need to look to God again. We need to turn to God. We need to come together and say, God, here we are. We need to look to God again. There must be repentance of sin, as Don sang earlier. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. It's of interest to me that when God gave that, He didn't say if America would do such and such. He didn't say if the world would do such and such. He didn't say if the pagans would do such and such. He said, if my people, it's you and me. If my people humble themselves, if they pray, if they seek my face, if they turn from their sin, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and will heal their land. He put it in our court. It's us. Let me conclude. Our foundation is spiritual. Has been from the beginning. In 1620, the settlers who came to America on the Mayflower signed the Mayflower Compact that said they had come for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. In 1634, they formed the New England Confederation, which was our first constitution, that reads, Whereas we all came into these parts with one and the same end and aim, namely to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel in purity and peace. Our foundation for self-governance is spiritual. Our future is fragile. We are in danger of losing it. And your faith is critical. In the book, The Decline of Democracy, we read, if we are to restore democracy, we must first renew the values that gave it birth. Joshua stood before the people of Israel and said, Choose you this day whom you'll serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Today I'm asking you to choose whom you will serve. Will you serve the living God? Will you serve the Lord Jesus? Will you order your life in that way? Because you are the hope we have of democracy in years to come. What decision will you make? Our Father and God, we come to a time of invitation as you examine our hearts. Lord, I pray that we might be people committed to you first and foremost. I pray, Lord, for those who have grown cold and you want to do something wonderful, something great in and through their lives that will make a difference. I pray today, Father, that they might come before you and make a commitment that will change their lives and possibly change America and our world. Lord, I pray for the moving of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a hymn of invitation. 
If you're here without Jesus, I invite you to come and receive him today. The staff will be here to pray with you, to talk with you. God has impressed on your heart about becoming a member of this church. Our doors are open to you. But I also hope that you will consider, if you want to come forward or stay in your pew, I hope that you will seriously consider a commitment to the Lord that can revolutionize your world and our world. I pray that you will seriously consider that. Let's stand together as we stand. The choir sings. As they sing, you come. I'll greet you.